0: Well, good morning. Picking up in Nehemiah where he left off in chapter 2, verses 11 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 20. The realities of rebuilding. The talk or speculation of rebuilding or restoring is motivating, it's inspiring, and it's exciting to talk about. However, the work that it takes to get it accomplished, well, let's be honest, it's really not all that great. It can be difficult, it can be demanding, and it can be exhausting. Therefore, you and I must carefully consider the realities of rebuilding to protect ourselves the best we can from stress, from fatigue, and burnout. One reality of rebuilding is there will be a mess. Knowing this, we must consider a few things before we begin. First off, it's always easier to start from scratch. Number two, is there still a need for what is going to be rebuilt? Number three, is anything salvageable, And of course, the fourth thing we need to consider is, am I really committed to the work that it's going to take to rebuild? Now if you answer yes to those last three statements, is there a need for what's being rebuilt? Is there anything salvageable? And you're committed to do the work what's going to take? And you agree with the first statement that it's easier to start from scratch? Then the next step we must take, or you must take, is to make a good assessment of the damage done. But how do you make an accurate assessment of a situation or condition? And for that, let's look at our text. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind or heart to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal which I, on which I was riding. So I went out by night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuge or dung gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates which were consumed by fire. Then I pressed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and expected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation that we are in. Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. Then they said to us, then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Taviah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, are his, serv- we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion right or memorial in Jerusalem. So, how do you make an accurate assessment? Look at the first part Nehemiah's secret assessment or covert assessment by night, verses 11 through 16. He tells us he came to or arrived in or went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Now, we're not told exactly what Nehemiah did during those three days. He may have rested and met with the Jewish leaders. During that time, the Jewish leaders of the community. But here's the point. Rest must never be overlooked, ignored, or disregarded. Rest is important. Mark chapter 6, verse 31. After doing a lot of ministry, Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. In fact, I have a favorite t-shirt that was given to me by somebody. It says, Jesus took a nap. Be like Jesus. And it gives a reference about when Jesus crossed over in the Sea of Galilee. And after He told the parable of the mustard seed, they're going across to see a galilee getting a storm. And it tells us, Jesus in the back of the boat, resting on a pillow taking a nap. So, be like Jesus. Take a nap. We need to rest. Because to make an accurate assessment, you need to be physically and mentally ready. If you go to assess the situation tired, and worn out, and unfocused, you will hurt that assessment of that situation. God, in my opinion, wanted Nehemiah to have some rest after that long journey so he could be focused on what God wanted him to do. He assessed, he rose in the night, It tells us he took a few men with him. But look what it tells us. He did not tell anyone what God had put on his heart or in his mind to do for Jerusalem. See, hard work alone will not ensure success. It must be the right work at the right time done in the right way. Praying and trusting does not mean that you don't go research. So he was going out by himself to assess the situation. He was doing His research. He needed to know what walls needed to be rebuilt. What part of the wall had to be constructed new. And he wanted to assess the situation properly before he presented his project to the people. Look what he says. gives another small detail here. No animal was with him except the animal on which he was riding. Nehemiah did not want to call attention to himself about what he was doing. He didn't want to start opposition before he started, as we see back in Ezra chapter 4, verse 12. Look at verse 16. He didn't tell anybody what he was up to. Only these few men went with him, and that's it. And he went at night. It only took one animal. He was being very cautious about what he was doing. Because to make an accurate assessment, you need to be unbiased. It only took a few men. He wanted to see the situation for himself without everybody giving their own commentary about what was going on. You cannot delegate this task. You have to see it for yourself. That's true about anything, right? You have to hear it and see it for yourself. Now this is where the map and the bulletin will help you. If you look down south of the city, you'll see the valley gate. He tells us he went out the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well or eye. And that's going to be down south, further away from the city. Here's the valley gate. You look on the map, it goes down. That's the way he went. Now, the valley gate is considered to be the chief gate in the Russian Wall. That a dragon's well can also be translated a jackal well, often be considered near a place called Enrogel, And that I, as some translations render it, could be referring to another landmark, but you can see I want you to get a picture of your mind. He came out of that valley gate heading south. And he started going
1: to your left. I, I'd be uh what direction
0: would that be? Excuse me. West. You'd head, thank you, Corey. You'd be headed west, right? I should get this straight in my mind before I get up and preach it. Uh he goes that way. He goes to, you actually see the gate up, the refuge or the gate. That's at the southern end of the city. And you can look to your left or to your right of the Jerusalem. You'll see the Kidron and Ben-Homo Valleys. Right there where they meet is where that gate is. Now you have to realize Jerusalem sits up high. And the walls have fell out. So he makes his way around. He tells us he goes on by that way, inspecting the walls as he's going He tells us they were broken down and the gates were consumed by fire. Now put yourself in that situation. It's nighttime. You're riding around, see what happens. You see all this destruction. Then he tells us that he passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool. Now if you look on the map, the fountain gate was on the east near the south end of the city. This is where it gets interesting. The king's pool is often considered to be, or at least near, what will later be called the Pool of Siloam. It's actually called something else on your map. But if, he, if that was the case, he would have to go back inside the wall to see it. More likely, this was some type of uh, receiving pool at the time. We don't know exactly what the name of it was. We're not for sure. But look what he says. As he goes around there, as he makes that turn and starts heading north, he tells us there was no place for my mount to pass. In other words, the, the debris from the destruction obstructed the valley. There was houses that were built on terraces that had fallen down. Can you imagine the structure? Because it's sitting up high all this rock had fallen down. Interesting enough, archaeologists have found big stones right around that area where it looks like that's where the wall act. We're talking huge stones. Now it's obvious that he didn't go around the entire city, is it? But he saw this destruction. And it was so obstructed that he had to go back by the ravine, inspect the wall, and go back to the valley gate. So he just backed up and went back the other way. He couldn't go around. That's a lot of destruction. Can you, can you imagine his heart? This, is, this was his hometown. This was not some faraway place he didn't know about. This, this was Jerusalem. The temple of God was located within its walls. And, it, and the walls are down, they're destroyed. To make an accurate assessment, you need to be focused, but not obsessed. You need to be honest about the destruction, but don't obsess over it. If you do, that's called worry, and you'll get nothing but ulcers. You need to focus on the task that needs to be done, not the tragedy. In other words, you need to have that vision about what can be. Yes, the destruction was bad, but let's stay focused on the task. So after he makes that assessment of that part of the wall, He presents his challenge in verses 17 and 18, because the reality of rebuilding is there's going to be a need for workers. Someone needs to do the work. Now, when you know that you can't obviously rebuild by yourself, here's some questions you ask yourself. Is this of God? Is anyone feeling burdened by rebuilding? Am I willing to deal with the people and find out who they are? If you answer yes to all three of those, you need to ask God to place those people in your mind, the people who are gifted and talented for the task at hand. Can I just throw something at you? When I pray God bring people this way, I'm asking God to bring specifically people who can come who are gifted and talented to help us build the kingdom of God. Yes, I want the lost to come. Yes, I want the lost to hear the gospel. But I know we need people who are gifted and talented to help make that happen. You think you're here by circumstance, coach? Uh-uh. I pray to get you here, brother, and the rest of you. Because we need people who are gifted and talented. God, lead me to those people. That's what we must do when we rebuild. You need to be honest and accurate about what's going on. Talk about the challenges that are waiting for us for Baptist Church, but don't assess about it. Talk about, uh, can I just put it this way? Our best days are not behind us. Our best days are yet to come. We long for the old days. Oh, I wish it was like. That's great what God did, because what God did proves to us to give us confidence that He could do the same thing in the future. Nehemiah was able to discern the proper time to present this building project. He knew how to motivate people, and he used four incentives. Look back in the text, verses seventeen and eighteen. First, he identified with the people. The bad situation, or trouble, or distress. We are in it. Didn't say you, he said we. He identified with the people. I'm right there with you. Number two, he stressed the seriousness of the situation. Jerusalem is desolate, it's destroyed, it needs repair. He committed to taking definite action. Come, let us rebuild. He gave the people an honest assessment and what the goal was. Jerusalem is desolate. The walls are down. The gates have been cursed. Let's rebuild it. And what the fourth incentive is? If you caught that, I kind of just kind of bounced over that. He gave a testimony of what God had done in his life. Look what he says. I told them, the people, how the hand of my God had been favorable to to me and also about the king's words which he has spoken to me. He's telling them this is all of God. God was behind the scenes getting this all together. Let me tell you what God has done for me so far. Your biggest way to reach people, if you will, is your own personal testimony, what God has done in your life, what God is currently doing in your life, and what God is going to do in the future in your life. Because that's your story. No one can argue with that, because that's your experiences. That's your story. If you haven't done this, take time out and write down your salvation experience or something you've gone through. Now I have to admit, I've been a little lax this year. I used to journal a lot. I need to go back to that. Because as I journal, I'm writing down all sorts of stuff, and it gives me physical evidence. At the end of the year, go back and say, oh, look how God worked. God worked in this situation. Because in the, in the middle of things, sometimes
1: you don't catch it, we don't see it. But you go back and say, aha, look what God did for me. Then you
0: see opposition by ridicule in verses 19 and 20. So here's another reality of rebuilding. The Hello, there's going to be opposition. Knowing this up front, you need to ask yourself is this worth fighting for? How will I hold up under the criticism? And how will I respond? Because before you lead people into rebuilding, you must be able to answer these questions. Because getting them started, only to bail out when opposition gets hard, does nothing at all for the people or for the task at hand. It can be very harmful for the people and also the task at that at that point. Now we knew from earlier on in our story that Sambalat Tovaya and this new guy Gisham, who was over. Edom at this time, under the uh, Persian rule, they knew he had credentials from the king because the king gave them to him before he left, remember? They knew he had credentials. They tried to stop the work by disheartening the people who were building. They used ridicule and mockery as their tools. They even accused them, looking at the text, what are you doing, Rebelling against the king? They're doing that because that brings up me- memories of Ezra, Ezra excuse me, Ezra. <laughs> Ezra chapter 4 verse 12 when official action was taken against them and the work stopped they complained again about them doing work in Jerusalem, sent word of the king the king had the, it stopped so I would mess with the people's minds well is this really worth it, is the king going to stop it again why should we bothered? that's what they're trying to do because when the enemies of God's work cannot find any legitimate means for opposition they use ridicule, relic- questioning the significance of our labors. And that sometimes does more harm than even questioning one's credentials or good intentions because it attacks a very incentive or motivation for the action taking place. See what I'm talking about? If they come after that way. Well, should we even do this because the king may change his mind? Who knows? Why even bother to begin with? Because we'll have to stop. It'll be torn down again. Why bother?
1: Look at, look at Nehemiah's response to this oppositional. It's very important what he does here. Notice that he did not
0: speak of his authority or the king's authority, did he? Rather, he spoke of his trust in God. Look what he says. The God of heaven will give us success. Not he might give us success or hopefully give us success. He was confident the God of heaven will give us success. He advised the people to ignore the ridicule threats and simply work. Therefore, we His servants were arise and build. He's going to give us success, so we're going to do the work. And he refused to compromise. He denied, denied his opponents a share in the work, the land, or worship of the Jewish community. Look what he says. You have no portion or share or heritage, right, or memorial, or historical claim is another way to translate that, in Jerusalem. He answers them right back. And remember... It wasn't long ago when Sambalat and Toviah had a lot of influence on the jurisdiction of Judah over the affairs of Jerusalem. They had a lot of influence over that. Now, here comes a Jew, Nehemiah, who's going to rebuild it. And he has all the backing of the king. He was in charge. In fact, he was commissioned by the king to do the work. Don't you know that this ruffled their feathers just a little bit? But Nehemiah was confident. This was of God. God will give us success. It's terrible. I've seen the damage. It's going to take a lot of work. But he tells the people, if we do it, the work that God wants us to do, He will give us success. So as exciting as rebuilding is, here are the realities that come with it. The reality of rebuilding is going to be a mess. You have to make an assessment. A good assessment that's unbiased. You have to see it for yourself. Don't take someone's word for it. Look at it. Pray about it. Research it. We have the same thing in this church. We have committees that look at problems. They go out, they look at it. They see it. They research it out. What's it going to take to fix it? And then present us to us as a church. And we as a church... We have confidence that this is of God. He's laid us all in our hearts. He will give us success. He will give us success. And the reality of rebuilding is going to be a need for workers. Each of us have a part to play. Roll up our sleeves and get busy. And with that or another reality of rebuilding is there will be opposition. Now, everybody will be on the same page. Sometimes that comes within the community, sometimes that comes in the community around us, sometimes in the church. Nehemiah knew these realities of rebuilding, and yet he still led the people to rebuild. So as you look at the realities of rebuilding, you must decide for yourself, are you going to do it or not? And yes, we're not rebuilding a wall here, or a building per se, although there's work to be done on this building, we are restoring rebuilding the kingdom of God. We're, we're get, turning this church around to be a healthy, vibrant church, reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see people saved. We want a revival, do we not? There's a lot of work to be done, and we must look at these realities and ask ourselves, are we up to the challenge? And if you're wondering... God has given me my answer and that's the reason I'm still here. And I will not leave until the
1: work is done. We have on our page about us on our website a thing called Our Vision. And we have... Our
0: logo, if you will, living by faith, known by love, and then underneath that, resulting in being a voice of hope. But here are some things that are listed: organize for outreach, maintain a strong follow-up ministry to visitors. Now, that can be challenging because some people don't leave their contact information for us to follow up. Sunday school teachers follow up with their
1: visitors, do phone calls, email. I
0: have to say this, but COVID put a dent in a lot of this stuff. And we were making so much progress with COVID, let's just face it, stopped everything in its tracks. Provide training in personal evangelism and the way the master is listed here. That's only one way you can do it. Teach you how to share your testimony, how to clearly articulate the plan of salvation, and how to lead a person to faith in Jesus Christ. Because that opportunity may not come on a Sunday. It may come out when you're shopping in Walmart or something. You never know when God's going to bring you that situation that you can tell somebody and lead them to Christ. Develop, maintain, and increase awareness and involvement in missions. Continue to enhance involvement, image, and visibility to our community. Maintain a welcoming ministry to the people moving to the area. Discover real needs in the community, both physical and spiritual. Strengthen Bible study and discipleship ministries. Cultivate excellent leadership. These are just a few things that are listed. Now our text is talking about a group of people who are building the walls of Jerusalem, but there's some principles here I believe we can pull over and put into our contemporary situation today.
1: There is good work going on in this church.
0: Come up on a Wednesday night, see blast. VBS is coming. How many kids we got signed up for VBS? Fifty-three, last I was told. We have a young adult. That's taken off, but it's sitting some hard times. COVID, COVID took a hit on everything. But I'm telling you, as God is
1: my witness, there's still work to be done, and I know God will give us success if we just keep our eyes focused on Him and the vision that He has for this church. Like I said, God has given me my answer, and I'm still here. I'd like to close with this illustration. This is a long time ago. You'll see a picture of this guy,
0: James Corbett. You should see a picture. There he is. In 1892, he became the first boxing heavyweight world champion. Get this. He won by knockout in the 21st round. 21st round. Now, to give you some context, boxing matches a day, The longest they usually go is 12 rounds. They might be a little less. Normally the longest is 12 rounds. Each round is three minutes long. This guy went 21 rounds. This is what he had to say about the art of being a champion. Quote: Fight one more round. When your feet are so tired that you shuffle back to the center of the ring, fight one more round. When your arms are so tired that you can hardly lift your hands to come on guard, fight. One more round. When your nose is bleeding and your eyes are black and you're so tired that you wish your opponents would crack you on the jaw and put you to sleep, fight one more round. Remembering that the man who always fights one more round is never whipped. End of quote. Forrestburg, it's not over yet. We have to fight the good fight. Well, yes... The war has been won through the cross of Jesus Christ, praise God. But there's work to be done. I don't know what all your circumstances are or the obstacles that you are facing, but let me encourage you, fight one more round. You may feel like giving up, but fight one more round. You may feel defeated, but fight one more round. You're not beaten yet, you can go again, and I'm confident that you'll be surprised what can be done when you refuse to not to give up. Fight one more round, St Corinthians chapter four, verses seven through ten. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Fight one more round. Each of us know things that need to be done. We know the work before us is going to be hard, difficult, demanding, and yes, even exhausting at times but we know the one who can supply all our, our needs through Christ Jesus our lord and that is the god of heaven and earth i don't care how old you are how young you are how educated you are or not you have a vital part to play in rebuilding and restoring
1: right here in Forestburg community montague county and i'm telling you i am confident just as nehemiah was god will give us Success. It can start right here and right now. The only thing that's stopping us is us. That's the only thing. There'll be times we feel like giving up. Yes, I've been there. I'll be honest with you. There are times I feel like going to hell, but I have to go that extra round. How can I not? When God did not stop, He went the full course to bring me back from the depths of the grave and damnation into life everlasting. How can I not do the same? Perhaps
0: you've never given your life to Christ. You feel you're at the end of your rope and you feel all this things. You feel discouraged. You just feel like quitting. I've been out there. It's hurting. This COVID, it, it took my job. I don't have any money. You have a, come to Jesus.
1: He is what you need. Not me, not necessarily this church, but him and his church that is represented right here. That's what you need. If you've done that, I know God is speaking to your heart right now, calling you into a deeper walk, into more activity. There's more to be done. There's paint to there's walls to be painted, there's structures that need to be fixed in this church. There's relationships we need to continue making our school. God has
0: blessed us in so many ways. Look, we have faculty from the church. We have the athletic director. We have a coach, another teacher. I want a first name basis with the superintendent
1: of the school. God has blessed us. People appreciate this church. But we have to ask God to help us to bring from appreciation into the church. And show them that indeed we are a people known by love for each other, but more importantly, for God. And we're living out our faith. The ball is in your court. This is the invitation. What are you going to do? We're in that situation like the, the assessment's been made, and we've all heard it, and like Nehemiah said, what are you going to do? Here's the situation. What are you going to do? I mean, it's almost the same situation we find ourselves as a country, is it not? What are we going to do? I submit to you what we need to do is stand up with one voice and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He alone is the answer. He alone is the Savior of the world. And unashamedly pronounce that and direct that out to our community. And live out our faith. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's power. Power to save lives. Power to transform people. There's revivals that have happened historically that started with less people than we see right here, right now. Go the history books you read about. This is Your time. What
0: are You going to do? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word that although we read a a story that took place so long ago in in a land that we're not familiar with, a culture that we're separated from, but God, we know the same thing is true today. That You desire to use us in a
1: mighty way. That You desire to be glorified. That You desire that all Men and women should not perish, but all come to repentance. Uh, Father, I pray for the ones here, the ones listening over the internet, dear God, that You would break every wall down, bust every chain, take all excuses away from us. We know time is short. Your guiding all history into one specific time when you send your son back give us a sense of urgency help us to have mercy as we look out onto other people let them let us see them as you do May your spirit continue to move and speak to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?